0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Birth Lounge podcast. You're listening to episode number 108, and today I am joined by Dr. Neil Shaw. Now, Dr. Shaw is someone who I followed for a long time, and I've seen him speak at a few events. He's the Assistant Professor of Obstetrics Gynecology and Reproductive Biology at Harvard Medical School. He's also the Director of Delivery Decisions Initiative at Harvard's Ariadne Labs. Now, Ariadne Labs is a collaborative service partnered with Brigham and and Women's Hospital here in Boston and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health to develop scalable solutions for medical facilities so that in the times of critical life-saving needs, these hospitals can then rise and meet this challenge to meet this need to save this life. Dr. Neal has been heading up the C-section research across our nation, and I, for one, am super, super grateful. I feel incredibly lucky to be able to work in the same city as him and be able to learn from him and be able to also reap the benefits and see the positives that are coming from the things that he is implementing and helping our hospitals implement as well. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm very excited to have you and to have you share all of your wisdom and your knowledge and your research with our listeners. Cesarean section bursts are something that are a hot topic. I think it, um, I think a lot of women fear it, actually. And so I'm hoping in this episode, we can do a little bit of dispelling some of those fears through evidence-based stuff, hopefully giving people some um, you know hard evidence can help get rid of some of the things that are really scary about this this type of birth. Um, but before we dive into all of that, beyond medicine and research, tell us a little bit about who you are. Who is behind the microphone today?
1: <laughs> um, uh, my name is Neil. I am, professionally, I'm an obstetrician and I'm a professor um, in public health, but I really come at this issue as a human being. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, Um, and, uh, I think that the way that we get our start really matters and want to be part of the solution to make things better for people.
0: I can appreciate that so much. Um, for our listeners, Dr. Neil, in my mind is such a pioneer. He's truly a trailblazer in cesarean research, um, kind of just OB research in general. Um, but today specifically specifically where we chatting about C-sections. So, Dr. Neal, let's start off with some current stats, which our people um, need to know before we jump in about cesarean rates in the U.S., how we compare to other countries, and how we got to this place specifically right now.
1: Uh, sure. Um, so, I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that uh, childbirth is really personal. it's very hard to talk about it without projecting our experiences onto other people or just, you know, the the last thing I want to do, and the reason I say this is to invalidate anybody's experience out there. Um, The other thing I want to say is that C-sections are tricky because they're a life-saving surgery and they're sometimes necessary. There are a lot of things in healthcare where we're trying to um, reduce things down to zero. Like, we know that the right mortality rate is zero. We don't know what the right C-section rate is, uh, and it's not zero. All that makes it tricky. That being said, when you take a big step back, uh, C-sections have now become the most common major surgery performed on human beings. We've um, got 120 million babies born per year in the, in the world. And about one in four of them is born through a C-section globally, and about one in three in the US. Uh, and that represents a 500% increase in the use of that surgery from the last generation to this one. Um, so that's kind of remarkable you know, the, the rates of C-sections in the U.S. and globally have skyrocketed. And in the United States, on average, people haven't really seen a benefit from doing that much more surgery. Babies don't seem to be better off. Moms don't seem to be better off as a result of all the surgery. And in some ways, they seem to be actually worse off.
0: I love that you point out that it is life-saving. So I think a lot of people come to this um, this birth arena with this idea that I absolutely don't want a C-section. And I'm always very quick to remind people you shouldn't put it off the table because if it comes down to saving your life, you absolutely want access to this life-saving surgery. Um, I think it all is in moderation, right? It's all in being very peculiar and intentional of when we choose cesarean as, you know, as a method of birth for sure.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's necessary and it's also not, uh, you know, the the truth is that Generally speaking, C sections are safe. Like we're good at doing them, which is part of why they're so common. Um, But, uh, you know, there are a couple of reasons why we want to be thoughtful about it that I think are worth unpacking. You know, the first is that if you can avoid one, it's better because taking care of a newborn infant without recovering from a surgery is a lot easier. It's also true that, you know, all surgery comes with some level of risk. Uh, And so things like hemorrhage, organ injury, Infections are about three times more likely to happen with a C-section than with a normal delivery. Um, But then, you know, the real reason that we worry about it is less about, um, you know, the individual choices and more about the population effect of doing so many. Uh, And what that what that really means is that we're just starting to come to terms with what it means for one in three human beings to be born this way. And most moms have more than one baby, and that's really where the tricky part comes in. So. You get the first C-section, it's usually pretty straightforward. Turns out obstetricians are the only surgeons that cut on the same scar over and over again. Uh, So the second C-section ends up being a little bit trickier because you have to go through all that scar tissue. And the third one can be really tricky. Um, Not to get too graphic, but sometimes it's like operating on a melted box of crayons um, because all the scar tissue just sort of fuses together. And the placenta, which is an organ that only exists in pregnancy, it's a big bag of blood vessels, gets 25% of everything that the heart pumps can get caught up in that scar tissue uh, and not detach properly. And when that happens, women can bleed a lot and sometimes to death. And that's the thing that we're really starting to worry about. So, um, you know, I say that because the tricky part of this is that there's the individual choice and on the individual level, when we need to, we can make these surgeries safe. But on the sort of blown up population level, the trend is definitely worrisome.
0: Certainly. I mean, I think it is kind of the same thing as antibiotics. We're just now seeing what overprescribing antibiotics will do to our population. So now it's just, I always try and, and kind of undevilize or de-devilize C-sections. It's not that they're bad. It's just that we want to be mindful of what we're doing to the future. Exactly. Um, yeah. I so love my, that example.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause like antibiotics for the most part, well, you know, in theory, there's some risks to antibiotics too. Like anyone who's ever had their stomach get upset or anything like that from being on antibiotics, but generally speaking, they're safe. But the thing is, um, there's so much resistance to antibiotics now that, you know, there could be a zombie apocalypse in five years, you know, like we don't know. Uh, and so we started, we definitely have to think about that. And I think it's a a great, uh, um, you know, analogy to what we're talking about with C-sections.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I truly do believe that all humans bring their best intentions to birth and just sometimes they don't line up and or we don't know what the long term causes. So once we do find that out, there's no sense in being angry over it. We just need to kind of reroute. What we're doing, so we we dove a little bit into cesareans, you know how invasive they are. But let's talk about the gravity of what you can expect afterwards, because I think a lot of people don't realize. They just think it's kind of a simple surgery, and postpartum will go on as usual. But it's not. There are things that you know impact the birthing parent and their partner and baby. There are limitations that come along with this major surgery and postpartum. What does what does that look like?
1: I mean, so I've never had to recover from a c-section myself but from my perspective of um, caring for a lot of people who have one of the things that I've noticed is that you know moms are just resilient and so when things are harder they'll just sort of like deal with it right and then if you've had a c-section once it's hard to know what the alternative would have been like you know it's very easy for us to sort of normalize whatever our experiences become so you know if you had a c-section the first time and the recovery was difficult you just sort of think okay that's what it is and so the next time around um you know that's that's sort of what you do, but um definitely you know from my observations of taking care of people, recovering from major surgery is a big deal uh and having to do that while you're also getting p o w level sleep deprivation <laughs> um you know most likely facing pressure to return to work uh and, and uh and, and doing all of that is a lot um so uh You know, and I think the other challenge is that um, usually people are so um, concerned about what labor is going to be like and what the birth itself is going to be like that sort of forget that the really hard part starts afterwards. Um, And, uh, you know, again, um, not having to recover from that big surgery can make it that much easier.
0: I cannot agree more. I mean, from my perspective as a maternity concierge, I can tell you that recovering from a C-section Think about feeding your infant, whether you're breastfeeding or you're bottle feeding. They're laying on your tummy. That's pressure. You need to get up, except it hurts every time. So the only things you really want to get up for are to feed your baby. If someone can bring them to you, it's better. You need to get up to shower and go to the restroom. But that means someone needs to cook for you. Someone needs to clean up those dishes. Someone needs to you know, help you get dressed if you can't bend all the way over to get your pants or underwear or socks all the way on or off. Shoes, I hope you have slip-ons. You know, there are certain things that you should consider for sure. Um, It is certainly, certainly a major surgery. Um, And I think that you hit the nail right on the head when you say that people don't think about the postpartum. I spend significant amounts of time with my clients preparing them for postpartum because it can be the biggest like brick wall almost you just feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Sometimes, um, you know, kind of looking back saying, I wish somebody had told me
1: a hundred percent. Um, thank you for saying that too, because I, you know, there, there's times during that period that, uh, can be amazing, but for the most part, it's, uh, you know, a period of universal vulnerability. Um, and for people who are sort of on the margins of, and this is what I really worry about: if you're on the margins of wellness and illness anyway, or on the margins of just basic security and insecurity, like it's it can be so difficult that it can push you over the edge. Um, and all these little things that you mentioned matter so much. I mean, even if you've had a normal vaginal delivery, uh, having support around you is really, really important. And you need even more support if you're re- recovering from a C-section.
0: You truly do have to think that you're learning how to relive. So you're introducing an entire new human being into your family. So it will certainly disrupt the waters on all accounts. So you touched a little bit on this, but how does access to proper high quality health care play a role in this? If you don't have access to great quality health care, can we expect to see a rise in cesarean rates?
1: I mean, I I think it's hard to say because there's parts of the world where not having access means that you don't have access to C-sections at all. Uh, And there's even parts of our own country. It turns out 75% of the United States is rural and one in five Americans lives in a rural part of the country. And, uh, you know, 50% of U.S. counties don't have anybody qualified to take care of a birth. So there are many parts of Oklahoma, Arkansas, South Dakota. I mean, California, New Hampshire, I mean, there are parts of our country where you routinely have to drive hours to access basic care. And that can mean actually uh, less access to some critical services. But then, you know, the irony is uh, when you do drive those two or three hours, um, often you end up getting care in these environments that are really um, treatment intensive. Um, And so, you know, uh, for example, um, I've been to places in Sioux Falls South Dakota, where women routinely drive a couple of hours to get there, but when they get there, it's a tertiary academic medical center with a really high cesarean rate. Um, so, you know, it, it, can, it can really go both ways. But, um, I mean, I think it sort of underscores that uh, having access to care, actually not only during the birth episode, but the entire period leading up to it and the, entire, and the really critical period afterwards is really, really important to people's overall uh, well-being. Um, And it can influence cesarean rates, but the exact pathway is not clear. In some settings, I think it leads to too little too late. And in other settings, it leads to too much too soon.
0: That fine balance sneaks up on you everywhere. And for our listeners, if you're just now tuning in, I haven't always had awesome access to this Boston medical world. I grew up in Mississippi, um, so this rural part of the United States 100% hits home for me. I know exactly um, what that is like. I certainly um, had access to health care. So not to, uh, you know, downplay anyone who has not access to great health care. But the rural part of America, I'm, I'm well familiar with. So Dr. Shaw, I wanted to share a little bit about your research. What are you researching specifically? And what trends are you seeing?
1: um well we're doing a lot of work to figure out how we can make sure that every person can start or grow their family with dignity that's really the vision for the overall scope of work and trying to think about the fact that you know um beyond like the specific problems and solutions there's actually a larger issue where we just need goal clarity of what we're trying to do when we're taking care of people in birth um which is right now um we're living in a moment where there's recognition that today to have a baby, it is riskier, costlier, scarier than it was a generation ago. I told you about the cesarean trend, that it's gone up by 500%, but it's also true that for an American mother today, you're 50% more likely to die in childbirth than your own mother was. And then if you're you're black, you're three to four times more likely to die than if you're white. Um, And, you know, even those issues are the canary in the coal mine of a much larger problem. Um, And, but sometimes, in our sharp focus on things like safety and mortality, we forget that women have goals in labor other than emerging unscathed from the process, and that survival and not being harmed is really the floor. But what we, sh- we should be aiming for is the ceiling care that's not just safe, but also supportive and empowering. Um, and a lot of the work that we're doing is trying to figure out how, um, you know, where the gaps are in creating that larger vision for care and then how we can gap fill and create the right kinds of solutions. Um, You know, as part of that work, it's been a lot of touring around our country and other parts of the world to see how birth works uh, and trying to understand where the 500% increase came from um, or why the biggest risk for having a C-section in the first place is not your personal preferences or risks, but literally which door you walk through, uh, meaning like which hospital you choose. So a lot of our work has been unpacking that kind of thing.
0: I like that you talk about filling in the gaps. It's exactly how TBH was born. Um, that pun always makes me giggle. <laughs> so um, what are you finding in your research? What, um, what are you seeing around the world? What are other countries doing that we're not? What has been causing this 500% increase?
1: Well, one thing that's really clear is when you look across the world, um, you know, trying to think about the best way to say this, but basically what it comes down to is people will procreate whether you give them a safe and dignified way of doing it or not. And what that means is whatever the status quo is, is considered normal in every part of the world. So like you'll go to places in the developing world where, um, you know, the conditions under which people give birth are really tough, but that's just how it is. And then in the United States, you know, one in three people will get major abdominal surgery to give birth, and one in 10 of their babies will go to the neonatal ICU. But that'll just be normal. Like, everybody has almost accepted that. Um, So that's one observation that I'll point out, is that a big part of the work has to be moving the goalposts and saying that women deserve more than just surviving the process. Um, And then, you know, looking across the world to see what a good birth looks like, or even what the quest to to define a good birth looks like, and then, you know, trying to go from there. Um, But, you know, when I look across the world, there's definitely a number of key differences between the United States and places that seem to do better than we do. Um, You know, access to care is actually a pretty big one. Um, And it's not just access to healthcare, it's access fundamentally to social support. So, you know, our country, we still have a relatively high uninsured rate, we don't guarantee that you're Um, you know, part of our healthcare system, even if you're a citizen. Um, When you're pregnant, there usually is a mechanism to get health insurance, but the minute that you're not pregnant, six weeks out, uh, it's really common for insurance companies to drop you, and that's usually the key period of vulnerability. Um, Right now, um, the whole experience from pregnancy through parenting an infant is socially isolating uh, in our country, and increasingly so. Uh, And when I look across the world, there's usually much better systems to make sure that you've got a village around you than we have here.
0: You're going to make me cry talking about the village. I love it so much. Okay, so on this journey of navigating this space, how can women advocate for themselves and kind of learn their rights?
1: Well, I think one place to start is that uh, moms in general are used to putting themselves last to put their families first. And that's a paradigm that we need to change because, you know, it's a false choice. It's not an either or proposition. Like when I go to Capitol Hill, if there's a meeting on nearly anything else in healthcare, you can push a button and have all the people who are affected by it show up. Right. If there's a meeting on breast cancer, you literally push a button and you can get thousands of people with pink ribbons to show up. But if there's a meeting on maternal health, it's not really clear where the constituency is. Um And I think that's partially because moms are good at advocating for every other progressive cause except for their own well-being, right? There's moms against drunk driving, there's moms against guns. There's not really a moms for moms. And so part of what we're trying to do is create that space. Um, one of my projects that I'm involved in is a nonprofit organization called March for Moms. And that's essentially the goal. It's to create citizen rallies across the country uh, with a big focus on DC to bring moms and their families together to advocate for moving the goalposts beyond survival. Um, you know. But I think, you know. certainly that's the place to start, right? It's just sort of reorienting to what you deserve.
0: Absolutely, I like how you talk about moving the goalposts. We should be um, setting better expectations. We should be setting better boundaries and saying, no, we're not going to accept this as our norm. Okay, so we've talked about advocating for ourselves, and you've talked about a little bit about the racial disparities but let's dive in a little bit more about that what are we looking at racial disparities wise and then how can we advocate for people of color um, how do we make it where all lives are you know looked upon as equal and treated as equal and cause there are some there are very clear biases in the treatment of of people in in the hospital, we see it all the time in the news stories.
1: I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, there are many ways in which the well being of mothers with growing families is really a bellwether for the well being of our society in general. And one of the clear signals of that is this stark racial disparity in outcomes. The fact that you know, a black woman is three to four times more likely to die across the board, twelve times more likely to die in New York City. Um, and uh, you know what that what that reflects is you know this difference seems to be irrespective of income, education, celebrity status, uh, and you know it's definitely room for reflection about some of the structural, I mean, racism essentially in our society. And so this ends up as a product of a couple things, but um, in my world as an obstetrician one of the things that I think I see pretty clearly is that my job as a doctor is to profile people, right? I mean, if you think about it, like my job is basically to look at you and tell you whether or not you're sick or whether or not you look sick, whatever that means. And what that results in is a really thin line between my intuition as a clinician and the way I'm trained and what's effectively racism. Uh, And just to put a point on that, like what we're seeing is that when women express symptoms um, that concern them, particularly around pain, Uh, If they're black, they're believed less than if they're white. Um, And so in in my view, that's an opportunity for self-reflection within the profession and trying to figure out how we deal with the implicit biases that we all carry as human beings. But in many progressive workplaces, you're sort of trained to recognize and mitigate your biases. But in medicine, we're actually trained to hone and amplify them as part of our practice, which is something that we've got to revisit.
0: So you will be teaching doctors how to hone and amplify them on certain things and dismantle them on certain things. Is that what the new kind of paradigm would look like?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that the new paradigm in general is that, uh, you know, we need to recognize the expertise that all women have in their own lived experience as part of the birthing process, right? That's really what it comes down to is that in 2019, Uh, There's no technology that's better than a mom's own sense of whether or not a baby is moving to know the status of a fetus. Like moms have expertise that a clinical enterprise never will and that it needs to be a partnership. At the same time, you know, childbirth has always been a team sport ever since Homo sapiens have started walking upright, had narrower pelvises and had dexterity, right? We We need each other's help to give birth, but it needs to be a true partnership between you know, the person in labor and the folks who are supporting and and caring for her. And and right now, you know, the the paradigm is really much more focused on the expertise of the clinician and the woman's experience is kind of tacked onto that. And I think, you know, the notion is to figure out how we reverse that. And I think that would help with, uh, you know, improving the safety and dignity of care for everybody. But I also think that it will help with some of the disparities that we see. Because it sort of forces a lot of our implicit biases to become explicit so that we're aware of them. Um, and um, we can make sure that, you know, we're not doing dumb things like not <laughs> believing women when they express symptoms around pain.
0: Absolutely. That is, um, it's absolutely so sad. And I think a lot of women probably experience this, not necessarily in the birth realm, I think a lot of women can say, yeah, I had that, that experience with a doctor in a different, um, you know, a different realm of health. So I, I feel like a lot of listeners are probably out there shaking their heads. Yes. Um, all right. So we touched a little bit on the emotional aspect of cesarean birth, but dive a little bit deeper into that when you talk about the emotional aspect of cesarean.
1: The emotional aspect? I mean, well, all I can tell you is that, um, okay, so as a doctor, whenever I do a C section, I'm always right. This is really important because if the baby comes out and it looks perfect, then I think, well, it's a good thing I did a C section. And if the baby comes out and looks kind of blue and lackluster, I think it's a good thing I did a C section. So it's pretty good to be me. I'm always right. Right. Mm-hmm. And then for, I think, a woman who's had a delivery, like in hindsight, you know, the expectation has been set that if you have an alive baby, then you should be happy, right? And often the circumstances under which a C-section happen are uh, stressful and fraught, and it's relief to have a healthy-looking baby on the other side. Um, and I think all those things sort of play into the dynamic there. Um, and one of the things that I found as somebody who's out there talking about the fact that you know, the C-section rates across the world are skyrocketing and that there are real consequences and even harm from doing that, is that there are a lot of women out there who've uh, had C-sections, believe fundamentally that they were necessary. And, um, you know, I've had to learn how to be really thoughtful to make sure that we're not invalidating their experience. That was their experience. Um, You know, I think one of the challenges is that whenever anybody finds out what I do for a living in the real world, like if I'm at the grocery store, they'll tell me their birth story, right? That's like their opening gambit. And if they've had a C-section, usually the reasons why they think they've had a C-section are not the reasons that I'm hearing in my head. In fact, that's not even like a occasional occurrence, that's like the most common one. And I think that that's part of the challenge here is that, for example, you know, a lot of women will be like, well, they saved my baby's life because When they got the baby out, the cord was wrapped around its neck. Right in my brain, I'm thinking, well, I deliver babies normally with the cord wrapped around their neck all the time. That probably isn't why you had a C-section at all. But They don't know that. Um, And so, um, yeah, that's just all to say that this is a really complex, definitely emotionally fraught issue. And um, a big part of the solution actually is trying to return, I think, um, the birth story back to women so that they truly understand what's happening to them through the labor course, understand if they had a C-section, why they truly had one. Um, and that, that can all sort of be part of how that they understand what's, what's, what's going on.
0: I love that you mentioned understanding why you had a C-section. So, you know, circling back a little bit how um, many women bring so much fear and this absolute idea of no c-sections sometimes they are necessary and I find that a lot of times if they are necessary you can find relief in knowing that you had access to that awesome medical care so I really like how you pointed that out and you mentioned um too about this narrative of you should be happy if you have a healthy baby right healthy baby happy mama um that is kind of how my trauma mama village got started and it was all of these women who came to me and were like I am not sure I experienced birth trauma but my birth didn't go like I thought it would but it didn't go badly necessarily but I am confused and I don't feel great um and turns out all these women do have um some sorts of trauma that was residual from their birth
1: yeah I think that's right. And and probably many more than we honestly know. Um, And often that trauma is rooted in this disconnect between, um, you know, how they're experiencing their care and um, what I think the people that are around them trying to care for them think that they're doing.
0: I think it's, it's missed expectations, right? It all goes back to, you said, kind of getting on the same page of what goal are we trying to accomplish here? Um, and it's not, I, I, I say this a lot, but I want our listeners to kind of be refreshed. It's not you against your doctor. We're all on the same team here. It truly is about conversations prenatally about setting your expectations so that you can get on the same team. Um, what do you have to say about doctors who maybe you can't really jive with? Um, I always suggest really change doctors. I don't think your doctor will be offended. If you don't jive with your doctor, chances are they get the same feeling from you. Um, And I think, again, all all doctors kind of bring it to the table. They want the best for their patients. So I think people want, your medical providers at least, want you to have the doctor that you do jive with, but from a doctor standpoint, what do you say?
1: I agree with you. I mean, I think that personal relationship with the doctor or midwife or NP who's taking care of you really matters. Um, That being said, you know, I think it's really important to understand too that uh, there's a quote I love about how every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets, right? So there's the personality aspect of it, but underneath it, the care that you ultimately receive is a product of the system that that clinician, doctor, midwife works within. And, um, you know, if you think about it, you first of all, most of the time, the person who takes care of you in the office during your dozen prenatal visits is not likely to be the one who's going to be there for you when you're in labor. Um, and honestly, that might even be for the best because labor is unpredictable. And you want to make sure that you're getting care in a system, ideally, where the people taking care of you in labor are fully focused on you, right? They're not also trying to be in the office or in the operating room or other places. Historically, that's how it worked. But, you know, the advantage to having different people is that the people that are on the labor floor are on the labor floor and the people that are in the office are in the office. Um, And so that's like a systems issue, right, that a lot of people don't often have line of sight into. But if you step back and think about it, it seems like a good idea. There's also the fact that the team that comes together to take care of a woman in labor comes together randomly for every woman, every time, because you can't really predict when a woman's going to go into labor and the woman doesn't know who's going to be on call or which nurse she's going to get assigned. And that team has to become high performing for one of the most important moments in our lives, like right away. Um, And so, you know, part of what I also try to think about is how do we create systems so that the nurse the delivering provider and the woman can become a high-performing team right away.
0: And provide comprehensive care across all your patients, right? So you want the patient that you had on Monday, two weeks ago, to have the same experience. As far as, like, you know, as much as you can control from her medical staff as well as the mom did today. Okay, so I've heard you speak... Um, particularly on connections between cesarean rates and the layouts of your hospital. So staying in the same line of like what you actually get on the medical floor, what do you find with hospital layouts and cesarean rates?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, so yeah, there's, the way that we think about creating better systems is like there's this outcome, which is that C-section rates are not only really high, but they're really different from place to place. Right, so at the hospital level, C section rates go from 7% to 70%, um, which is like a tenfold difference. Um, and uh, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, sorry about that. Uh, so, um, yeah, hospital level C section rates are really different. And so, underneath that, Uh, There's an opportunity to create better processes to make sure, like just like we were just saying, that we define what ought to happen for every person every time, and we engineer in ways to make that happen. And then even before that are the structures that we work within, which are like the layouts of our labor floor uh, or our birthing center. And it turns out that those are like kind of arbitrary. In a lot of hospitals, the labor floor is kind of retrofitted to some space that was never intended to be the labor floor in the first place. and that those differences might matter. Like, So for example, there are no rules for the number of labor and delivery rooms that you need based on the number of women you take care of. And so some places have to do a lot more with a lot less. And one way to deal with that is to just move women through a lot faster. And one way that you can move women through a lot faster is to do more C-sections. Um, so yeah, the, the, the layout, the design, all of that really matters.
0: So if a woman wanted to advocate for herself throughout this process as her doctor, um, how, do you, how do you suggest someone approach their doctor and say, we have fundamental differences in this belief um, in a respectful way, obviously in a way that you want your doctor to be receptive. Um, so from a doctor's standpoint, give us, give us the inside bits.
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I'm sure that uh, there are differences among doctors, just like there are differences among women and their families. But I think, you know, just, and, you know, the, I think the other thing that's hard about childbirth is that not everybody al- always has clarity about what it is that they want or even what they believe. Right. Um, and so, and that's okay too. But to the extent that you have clear preferences, I think um, knowing that it's okay to state them um, and to enter into those conversations. Um, Cause I, I think the prospect of talking to, the person caring for you about what you want can sometimes be really intimidating. Um, and so I think even just starting those conversations, and then if you get to an impasse, um, you know, if you've got the opportunity to make a change, then you should exercise that. Um, but for the most part, I think where things go wrong, is just never having the conversations in the first place. Um, and, you know, part, part of having effective conversations actually is starting them well ahead of any potential conflict. Um, you know, starting them in the office, like as early as you can. So um, in the areas where you have clarity, go ahead and let the person taking care of you know. And in the areas that are more fuzzy and gray, it's okay to acknowledge that too. And to say that, you know, I'm not really sure I feel about this yet. It's a moving target. I'd love to be able to talk with you and get your advice or whatever the case might be.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned a little earlier, too, that, um, you know, you have to be mindful of the policies. Do realize that your doctor's hands are tied on certain things. Those hospitals or your birthing centers or wherever you're even birth will have policies that your doctors will not be able to rise against. They won't be able to change that. Um, You know, it could be the hospital itself. It could be the insurance that they carry. There's lots of of moving parts here um, that I think your average birthing person probably is not Super aware of. Um, I wanted to cover, um, like, quote unquote, actual reasons. So we had um, we had some questions about inductions, actual reasons for inductions, and then actual reasons for C sections. Um, this is a hot, hot topic. I think a lot of people find their fakes in the system and kind of knowing what is a real, um, you know, reason for a C section or an induction versus what might there be alternatives for.
1: Um, Well, like most things in life, there's lots of shades of gray. But what I'll say is that there's, for both, I think total clarity on when to intervene in an emergency. And just like we were saying before, it's a timing failure, right? Either too little, too late, or too much, too soon. So the question on when to act with an induction or a C-section, totally clear when there's like a full-on emergency. Where there's wide disagreement is when to act to prevent the emergency in the first place. And people will disagree about that from now until the end of time. Um, you know, because usually what a clinical guideline can do, um, which is what I think we're referring to, is sort of tell you the minimum. But it can never really tell you the maximum. For example, it'll tell you the minimum amount of time that a woman should be able to push if there's no other problems before you say, okay, it's not working. But it'll never tell you the maximum. And what's hard about that is that at 3 a.m., if a woman is pushing, and she's pushing for two hours and then three hours and then four hours. You know, there's no objective way of knowing how big the baby's head is until it's out. So you just have to use your judgment, right? And the longer that you wait, the higher the odds she'll have a normal delivery. But the longer that you wait, the higher the odds she or the baby will get injured. It's a really, really difficult decision to have to make. And the best way to make it is to be able to use your judgment as a clinician in partnership with the woman. But that's really the key, in partnership. You have to be able to use all the information that should be available to you in the room. And I think as the doctor, we sometimes forget that not all the information lives in our brain. So the mom can tell you things that nobody else can, not just her symptoms and preferences, but how much energy she has to keep pushing. Um, The nurse who spends more time at the bedside than any other clinician can tell you things that you might not know as well. Um, And so that's the real opportunity to figure out how everyone in the room can share the information in their brain in a way that's efficient and organized and reliable.
0: I love that. And I, I recently heard another doula describe um, the birth team as like a team, and the parent, the The birthing parent was the team captain, and while the team captain is the leader, they still sometimes know that other people on their team are better. You can't be the pitcher in the third baseman, right? You know that your third baseman is better than you at that, and so that's why you're the pitcher. Um, That's why you are the designated hitter. You each play different roles, but together you make up this great team, so I thought that was a great analogy. Dr. Shaw, I wanted to um, give you a few questions from our listeners that submitted um, questions like specifically for you. So here we go. Is it safe to have a home birth after cesarean? And how will someone know if they should have a VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, in a hospital instead? We will, I'll start by saying this is not medical advice, just like it's not medical advice for me. Dr. Shaw actually is a doctor, but he's not your doctor. So please keep your wits about you and um, talk to your (laughs) medical doctor if you have questions about your specific journey.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm happy to take a couple of these before I have to jump off. And, um, you know, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says they do not recommend uh, having a home birth. That being said, I mean, after, well, actually, they're pretty uh, cautious with their language around home birth in general, uh, but particularly if you've had a cesarean before. And their concern is that uh, they think the safest way to labor if you've had a cesarean before is in a monitored setting because of the risk of uterine rupture, which can always happen when you've got a scar. Um, That being said, there are a lot of women who don't have access to being able to VBAC. Um, at a facility because the hospital either doesn't allow it or feel like they've got the resources to be able to do it, which are the ability to monitor 24-7, to have anesthesia available, all of that. And so the only alternative for women who don't want to have a surgery um, is to try to do it at home. Um, you know, And that, that's clearly a larger systems issue. I would say that safety in general, though, is a matter of uh, Well, I think like you were saying, it's kind of subjective. Like the risk of a rupture is really, really low. Um, So, you know, uh, the risks of complications in general at birth are relatively low. Um, And so everybody just sort of has a different threshold uh, for what they're willing to tolerate and what they're willing to trade off, right? Because having a baby at home isn't just a matter of trade off around risks. It's about this whole dignity piece uh, and wanting to have control um, and uh, and all of that, which is something that we should be able to think about how we can honor.
0: Absolutely. I always describe it as kind of a puzzle piece, um, and you get to put together your puzzle. You get to dig through all the puzzle pieces and put together your perfect puzzle. It's just a matter of finding what is perfect for you. Um, so staying on this VBAC track, someone else asked, what are your options if you are pregnant and you can't find a VBAC doctor close to you? Do you have any?
1: Well, I mean, again, um, what, what I believe and hope that we can make the case is that uh, women ought to have options about how they want to give birth. And right now, usually they don't, right? Like 99% of American women have their babies in hospitals. Those hospitals are basically set up like intensive care units. Um, and as a product of that, a lot of women get interventions that they don't probably need a lot, like the plurality. Um, And so, you know, in other countries, women have the option between having a baby at home with a qualified provider who comes to you, going to a birthing center, or going to a hospital, and then all those different types of locations are part of the same system, um, which is part of what makes it safe. Here, we don't have that option across the board. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. tragic, frankly, and something that we've got to figure out how to fix. Um, And I'm optimistic about our opportunity to fix that because I'm seeing a lot of movement. People are starting to rethink whether or not every baby really has to happen in an ICU um, or can happen in in, in birthing centers. And we're seeing growth of of that kind of thing. But um, what I will say is I worry a lot about people who react to the fact that they don't have much choice by um, having their baby at home in situations that are not safe, because there are there are. I believe that there are circumstances under which you can have a baby safely at home. Um, But I worry about a lot of the things that I hear about where, um, you know, they are not able to access a qualified provider or they're really far from, you know, uh, just in case an emergency, they're they're really far from a hospital or if they are close to a hospital, the hospital doesn't know who they are. Um, And those are things that I'm seeing as trends in our country that really worry me.
0: For more information on that, um, there are some really great books and I can link some of them in the show notes for you guys that highlight this, um, incongruency kind of in our healthcare between home birth midwifery and our hospital system I hope that is something in the future that we can um, we can bridge so dr. Shaw I had so many women write in with things like I want another baby but I don't want another birth or my c-section almost killed me and now I'm super scared or my birth was a cesarean and very traumatic how do I prepare for another baby what do you say to these women
1: Wow. Um, well, I mean, I guess, I don't know where to start, I mean, it it just first, uh, I'm sorry that that was your experience. Um, And, you know, I'd want to learn more about, you know, um, just the experience that you had and and why it was traumatic and what led to it. Because I think just trying to understand it is sort of the first step towards not only being able to reconcile it and heal from what was clearly traumatic, but figuring out the right pathway forward. You know, I think having babies, growing our families, is existential for most of us, uh, and that's part of why I think it's uh, so deeply felt when things don't go the way we anticipated. And again, I think a lot of the trauma that comes with it is a disconnect between the way that we understand our experiences and the way the people that we're trying to care for us uh, were were trying to care for us. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of the opportunity forward is to figure out how we align those things better, both for you and for the system in general.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, For for kind of immediate relief, I always encourage people to reach out to your village, right? Join um, a Facebook group. So be mindful that there are really some wild people on Facebook. But if you stay within the realms of like, you know, quote unquote, normal people thinking, you can find some really genuine um, other parents out there who truly have walked a similar path. And you can really relate to those people find your village, rely on those people. And then secondly, I always encourage you to explore Um, you know, expose yourself to different things about birth. Expose yourself. We we rewalk that path of maybe your birth story and see where you would have wanted things to go differently and how can you possibly change that for any future births. So you have options. Finally, just know that you're not alone. You are far, far, far from alone. There is a whole village out there for you. There's multiple villages out there for you. So Please, you are welcome to join my village. There are other villages. You can create your own village. You have options, options, options. So last question, Dr. Shaw. What should people be thinking of when they begin to weigh uh, the risk of another cesarean versus a trial of labor? Because this is something I hear a lot. Um, women women really want VBACs, right? And if they have the access, there is this question of, but I feel guilty because I have the access and I'm not taking it. What do we have to think about there?
1: Well, um, right now, Um, In 2019, about 90% of women who've had a C-section the first time will end up with another one, whether they truly need one or not from a purely medical or clinical standpoint. Um, I will say that a trial of labor is a trial. So in many cases, it'll work out, but it's possible. And in fact, the odds are higher than had you not had a C-section that you'll labor and then end up with a C-section. Um, I'll also say, you know, it can be hard to to make the decision because, you know, you may have labored the first time and it may have end up, ended up not as a great experience, which is why, you know, because things got converted um, and all of that kind of plays into it, um, which I think is sort of a long way of saying, honestly, it's up to you. <laughs> like, trust your gut. You don't have to feel guilty about anything. Like, if you want to have another C-section, um, if it feels familiar to you, if it feels like something that you are mentally prepared for if you don't want to go through the experience of having to convert um, or even the possibility, like all that's fine. Um, You know, and if you want to labor, um, that's fine too. And hopefully you'll be in an environment that'll really support you to do that and uh, can take care of you safely. Um, What I will say is a lot of women who've had successful VBACs end up being really, really happy that they um, got to experience that as well as, um, you know, um, whatever circumstances led to a c-section and in fact um you know it does not always work out that way but uh you know childbirth can be an empowering experience too um and that's part of what i think there's an opportunity to do with doing a trial of labor
0: absolutely i think um i think you you nailed it when you said it's up to you everything in birth is up to you and you have options um What an awesome place to end the episode. Absolutely. Dr. Shaw, thank you very, very much for being here with us today. If people are interested in following along with your research or your journey, your travels, um, the things you're discovering, where can they connect with you?
1: Uh, Well, I'm on social media, so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or wherever you like to hang out. Um, But what I would love for your listeners to get involved in is this March for Moms, because I think, you know, if if you're listening to this podcast, you're already thinking deeply about the experiences that people have around childbirth for yourself and for, for other people probably too. And um, there's a window right now in our country. We're at a watershed moment where I think we're going from maternal health being something that was thought of as this transient episode in the lives of some people to there being a wider understanding that it's really the foundational episode in the lives of all people. And that there's this tremendous opportunity to make things better. Uh, so it's marchformoms.org, the event. There's going to be a big rally in D.C. that we hope will draw out thousands of people. It's going to be on May 11th, which is the day before Mother's Day. We'd love to see you there. And if you can't make it out, um, if you could just engage on social media, share it with others, share some of the key messages about how moms deserve more.
0: This March is an annual thing, so if you can't make it this year, go ahead and get it on your calendar for next year. You can certainly show up and show out, and Dr. Neal was so right. By showing up today, you're showing up for yourself, and you're letting us know that you care. Thank you so much. We see you. We hear you. We appreciate you. Hey there. Before you go, I wanted to tell you who made today's episode possible. Today's episode is brought to you by The Birth Lounge. If you're looking for a step-by-step guide to navigating pregnancy, preparing for birth, and adjusting to life with a tiny human, then I want to invite you to join the Birth Lounge. I created the Lounge so that parents just like you could connect from all over the world, explore their birth choices, learn from one another, share and support, and learn to navigate life with a new baby. In the Lounge, you have access to weekly calls with me, 10 training modules on how to prepare for childbirth, in a warm community that's really more like an online hug. The Birth Lounge dives into each and every birth choice that you may encounter so you can go into birth confidently and ready to take control of your labor. You will learn to master your mindset so that you can avoid birth trauma and achieve your ideal birth. This is access to experts to help answer your biggest and scariest questions all about childbirth so that you can go in calm and confident. There are resources in the Birth Lounge for packing your birth bag, pain relief during labor, the best birth positions, how to effectively push, ways to prepare your body for labor, postpartum healing, feeding your tiny human, introducing a bottle, storing breast milk, and so much more. For more information or to gain access to the Birth Lounge, please visit thebirthlounge.com. I can't wait to see you in the lounge. You deserve a calm and confident birth. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by HeHe. He. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.